Episode 219 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the brilliant American singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega, who's best known for international hit singles from the 1980s such as Marlena on the Wall, Luca, Left of Center and Tom's Diner. Suzanne has released nine studio albums to date. Her latest live album, which was released in 2020, is entitled An Evening of New York Songs and Stories. This interview took place in late 2022, when Suzanne was promoting a UK tour in early 2023. She taught me through songs by other artists significant to her life. The first one is The Girl from Ipanema, Astrid Gilberto. I remember hearing that at the age of four on the radio and thinking, I love this woman's voice. It, it sounded so sweet and it sounded like a child's voice. And it sounded kind of raw at the same time, like a child's voice. And I said to myself, if I ever become a singer, I want to sing like that. Hmm. And do you feel you have? Yeah. <laughs> well, I sort of patterned my singing style on hers, you know, very, uh, no vibrato at all and clean phrasing and just simple, a kind of simplicity about the, uh, about my phrasing and tone. And have you covered this song? Not in public, no. <laughs> just in the bath? Exactly. <laughs> Tell us about your life at this time, though. I mean, you were born in California and raised in New York. What are your earliest memories, perhaps of the time when you first heard this song? Yeah, I lived in East Harlem at this time. I was in Spanish Harlem. And we constantly had the radio playing. So um, that's where I heard it. And it was kind of a revelation to me. It was like, oh, she doesn't sing like all the other grown-up ladies. And that's why I was on East 109th Street, mm -hmm. between 1st and 2nd Avenue. Have you been back since to visit? Oh, yeah. I've been back. I've visited other people in the neighborhood and and that kind of thing. Slightly more gentrified, but still the, the character of the place is still the same. Okay. What's your second song, please? My second song is Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. And I must have been about eight years old when, uh, so this was 1968, I was at sleepaway camp, and people would say, what's your name? And I'd say, Suzanne. And they'd say, oh, like the song? Hmm. And I'd say, like what song? I didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, they couldn't really describe it. They, it wasn't really available anywhere. It certainly wasn't on the radio. So I became aware that somewhere out there was a song with my name, and I hoped it was a good song. And years later, probably in my teens, I finally heard the Leonard Cohen version. And I loved it. I loved it. And I also really loved the Judy Collins version. In fact, why don't we have the Judy Collins version? Because I heard that one before I heard Leonard. There's been a couple of other songs with Suzanne in the title. Oh, yeah, there's I Love You, Suzanne by Lou Reed, but that wasn't until way, way much later. And Suzanne, Beware of the Devil. And I'm Really Sorry, Suzanne. I've never heard of any of those songs. Really? Huge <laughs> what, what is, What's the first one? I'm Sorry, Suzanne? Yeah, I'm Really Sorry, Suzanne by The Hollies. And Suzanne, Beware of the Devil by Dandy Livingston. It's a reggae song. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're great. Have a look on YouTube after this. Anyway, yeah. were your parents quite musical? Did they kind of get you into music? Uh, my stepfather was musical. Um, he played the guitar and he sang. But the, no one had to get me into music because I immediately responded to it. I remember listening to flamenco records. My father would play around the house and I, I just always, always responded to music from day one. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they had to get me into it. I, I was there. I was there already. <laughs> yeah, I was there. Song number three, um, Suzanne. Song number three. It's Here Comes the Sun on Abbey Road. Okay. So this, Abbey Road was the first album I ever bought with my own money. And I was so proud and so thrilled. I had saved up, what was it, $10 or whatever it was, to get this LP back then. I was nine years old, so it was 1969. And we had moved already to the Upper West Side. So it was a, quite a different feel and quite a different neighborhood. And I remember at nine feeling very sophisticated because I knew how to work a record player and I could walk to the record store and get this brand new Beatles record. Mm -hmm. Have you met any of them? I have not. Is that a big ambition to meet McCartney or Ringo? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I know that he has a house in Long Island and I have a house in Long Island. And I was playing at the local club there called Stevens Talk House. And one night I was performing and I saw that there was a big table left empty. And I, on the spur of the moment, on the, from the stage, saw that it said reserved and there was a name on it. And I, I asked someone just to send it up to me, uh, send me that little bit of paper. And it said reserved and it said McCartney. Wow. I thought, holy cow, he was going to come with all his friends and something happened and he, he didn't make it. Um, but I kept a little bit of paper. Hmm? <laughs> so have who knows? Have you recorded at Abbey Road? I have, yeah. Um, I've done some shows. There's some kind of recording for some, I can't remember now what it was. Uh, but yeah, it was quite a, a, a while ago, 15, 15 years ago or so. Was it also quite a thrill though? Did you have a little tour around to see where the Beatles... Yeah, yeah it was great. Did you go on the crossing outside, on the zebra crossing? Oh, I think we, we looked at it. I mean, I think we crossed it because we had to. I don't, I don't even think we... We didn't even do it so We just marched across the road. <laughs> Number four song? Number four would be Guantanamera by Pete Seeger. Mm -hmm. When I was 12 years old, Pete Seeger came to our school. And by this point, I was in an experimental, progressive school on the Upper West Side. And Pete Seeger decided he was going to do a benefit concert at Carnegie Hall to benefit our school and some of the other experimental schools. So this is 1972. And I desperately wanted to be one of the kids sitting at his feet, singing along. That's what he was there for. He came to choose a, so a group of kids to sit at his feet for, part, for the atmosphere. So I got really close to him, and I sang Guantanamera as loud as I could, like mm -hmm. practically into his face. And I, I got picked. So my very first show was at Carnegie Hall, sitting at Peter's feet. Mm -hmm. um, I must say also that everyone else also got picked, so no one really was rejected. Mm -hmm. Everybody, including my little sister, uh, was picked to sit at his feet. And uh, so it was still a thrill and to begin my career on stage at Carnegie Hall. Oh. Amazing. And did you see much of Pete Seeger after that? 
or Bob Dylan or Joan Baez or I ran into Pete Seeger a couple of times. I mean, obviously, he didn't remember me because I was so young. Yes. In fact, I was supposed to do a show with him where he was supposed to open for me. And that was too embarrassing. I couldn't believe it. I was like, he's not going to open for me. So I said, no, no, I'm going to open for him. And we switched, we switched it so that I would open for him. And, you know, he was, he was pleased. So I ran into him a few more times. Hmm. Uh, the, the person I run into quite often is Joan Baez, who I love. And hmm. we've, we see each other. We've done shows on the same bill. And we've met at all kinds of social occasions. And I, I have a deep affection for her. And Guantanamera, have you played it yourself? No, no, there's no need for me to do that. Um, your next song, please. My next song is Freddie's Dead by Curtis Mayfield. And one of the parents of one of the children in the school, the same school we're talking about now, was the actor Charlie McGregor, who is the guy who played Fat Freddie in Superfly. So we were all so thrilled that he that he'd come around to pick up his daughter and we would all crowd around him, and he was a friend of our family. So every time I hear Freddie's dead now, I think of 1972, and I think of Charlie McGregor. Hmm. He's such a sweet guy. He was so nice and so playful and funny, and I used to go to his house, and I took uh, sewing lessons from his girlfriend. Hmm. Let's do Bob Dylan, um, because I was way into Bob Dylan. Everybody else was into, was into David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And I was still into Bob Dylan, so a lot of people just said, oh, she's really missed the boat, you know. But I didn't miss the boat. <laughs> so let's talk about Bob Dylan. I love the song Positively Fourth Street. Oh, me too. I was into Bob Dylan in my teens, so that was probably 1976. So Positively Fourth Street had come out five years before. Mm-hmm. But I still loved it, and I was studying Bob Dylan for his songwriting technique. 1976 is when I also started performing my own songs in little cafes and different places. How much influence did he have on your performing and recording? Well, almost none on my performing or my recording, but he had a huge influence on my writing. And in fact, this might be a better song to illustrate what I meant. Uh, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall influenced my writing because he had so many small images, almost like little paintings. And he would sort of state the image, but not explain what it was about. And this really made a deep impression on me. He'd say something like, I saw a white ladder all covered in water. And so you'd think about that and think, well, what does that mean? And and how beautiful and how mysterious that he just put this image here without explaining what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've done that many times in my own writing. And have you met Bob Dylan? I have met Bob Dylan, yeah. Could you tell us about that? Oh, it's lovely. Uh, I opened for him in Norway, and I had a half an hour for the sound check. I was on the stage doing the sound check, and the monitor guy came over and said, Bob Dylan wants to meet you. And I said, oh, my God, um, when? And he said, well, I don't know when. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean you don't know when? I mean, what? You know, I just stared at him, and he goes, well, why don't you ask him yourself? He's watched your whole sound check. And I looked over to the side of the stage, and there he was, standing there, smiling. (laughs) And I thought, oh, 
yeah. I mean, what am I standing here talking to you for? So I ran over to the uh, side of the stage, and there he was. And he was so friendly and funny. And so we had this great 15-minute conversation um, about this and that and nothing at all. You know, really sort of what, what hotel am I staying in, where, how long am I on the tour for, and this sort of thing. And it was very friendly and very different than the way I had a mic, uh, the way that I had imagined it. Yes. You know, I'd always expected him to be very reticent and suspicious. and But it was great. And at the at the end of the night, I said, thank you. And he said, I'd like to see you again. But I, I never have. Oh, okay. This year, he said he didn't want anybody watching his British concerts, holding their phones up, recording it, and putting it on YouTube. Where do you stand on that, Suzanne? I actually prefer it if people take photos because then sometimes I'll take them and reprint them myself, you know, the next day, and I give people credit for for the photos. Filming the performance is, is sort of different because the quality varies, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. But, uh, you know, I'm for it. I guess, you know, I, I once played with the Grateful Dead at, at Madison Square Garden, you know, in the 80s, and they had a special section for people to come and record. And So I think it's, it's, it's okay. It's not really about the quality of the recording. It's just sometimes you want a piece of the concert for yourself. Mm, no, quite. What's your next uh, song, please? My next song is Lou Reed, Caroline Says Part Two. Okay. So that was 1979. And I'd gone to see Lou Reed. I very rarely went out to see anyone perform. In fact, I think Lou Reed was my first actual concert that I was not in. You know, it was the first time I'd sat down in an audience and watched someone. And it was a hell of a concert. It was very aggressive, uh, quite a bit of theater, which I didn't realize was theater. He had tied up his arm and pretended to do heroin mm -hmm. on stage. And he was bashing his mic stand around and throwing it down to the floor and these scared roadies would come out and set it back up again. He would light a cigarette and throw it into the audience, and, and they would shout at him that he was an animal. Um, so this is all very interesting. And at first, I didn't really like it. It was at, at Columbia University, too, in a theater. So it wasn't even like this was like a punk rock club down in, at CBGB's or something. This was like a, a theater on co in college. So I didn't really know what was going on until the second half. They had an intermission, and when they came back, I realized that it was a real show because suddenly it switched into this other thing. It really became a concert where he sang the songs, presented them, um, and I realized that the first half had been a kind of theater performance thing that he was doing. And I really liked the song Caroline Says Part Two. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, I've never heard a song like that. I didn't even know that was allowed. I didn't even know you could write about that on a stage. Mm. So um, that changed. I became obsessed with Blue Reed after that and just kept going back to that album and back to all of his work. Did you get to meet him? Yes, many, many times. We became friends in the mid-80s and were friends. I mean, I saw him a month before he died. Gosh. So you've done well with meeting your heroes. Uh, apart from Van Morrison, I saw you talking about that. That sounded horrific. Yeah, that was really weird. Yeah, meeting Van Morrison was weird, but I, I couldn't say he was one of my heroes to begin with, so uh, so it, there was nothing lost by that meeting, but it was really weird. 
Yeah, no, Lou Reed, Bob Dylan, and, uh, and Leonard Cohen. I had great friendships with. I, well, I didn't have a friendship with Bob Dylan, but a great meeting. And David and, Bowie. Uh, oh, David Bowie was was very. Uh, uh, we had a wonderful meeting backstage. Very charming. He said, um, "Suzanne Vega, finally we meet after all these years." And I thought, "What? Holy Christ!" And I even said this out loud. I wonder if he's seen the poster in my agent's bathroom because we both have the same agent. Yes. And then I thought, "Don't. Wh- why did you say it out loud?" You know, I think that's that's a stupid thing to say to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's super charming. Yes, I bet. Um, what's your next song, please, Suzanne? Well, here's where I would have put Bob Dylan's "Positively Fourth Street" because I went down to Folk City, and it was on Fourth Street, which Third uh, Street, I think. So by this time, I I'd moved out of my parents' apartment. And I was going to Coke City, performing shows, and just hanging out all the time on Bleecker Street and and at Folk City. So it sort of uh, I liked all of those songs that had it, that had that theme, that that sort of folky theme. At that time, there were even Bob Dylan imitators contests. <laughs> uh, the people would would do that, you know, and people would would win them. He knew all about them, apparently, because he had asked to see the footage. They had been taped. Is it possible for you to choose a record from your kind of five-year period of big hits that perhaps influenced you or that you were really knocked out by or whatever? Yeah. um, At that moment in time, this was the early 80s, I loved The Police. Oh. And I loved Sting's writing. Particular Uh, song? Yeah, there's a little black spot on the sun today. What is that? The King of Pain. Yeah, King of Pain. King of Pain by the police. Did you get to hang yeah. out with them? Yes, I did. Yes, and he's wonderful. <laughs> he's a wonderful guy. Um, yeah, we've kept in touch over the years, and uh, I've opened for him several times. He's great. He's great. He's, he's himself. You know, he's a wonderful character. Um, a wonderful writer, and so I like him very much. Was the 80s an absolutely mad time for you? You were just going here, there, and everywhere, and your feet hardly touched the ground? So how we imagined it, I think? Well, it was different than I had imagined it. You know, I wasn't sure. I, I, I did not foresee pop success. I thought maybe I'd have a sort of underground success and be discovered after my death. So... The top ten hits were a, a little bit of a surprise, but I adjusted to it. Um, the thing that stands out for me in those days was going out to dinner with the record company executives, and one of them decided to spend 350 pounds on a bottle of wine, and that made a huge impression on me. And I was glad I did not personally have to put the bill for that. Um, but I remember thinking, this is a world I've never seen before. Because presumably you'd waited a while to get to the top, and when you were there, was it what you expected? Well, here's the thing. You know, when before I'd had my success, I was working as a receptionist in an office and answering the phones, and I would listen to the radio. And so I imagined that if I ever had a song on the radio, that I would hear it on the radio. But when I had Luca as a hit, I never heard it anywhere because I was always in a vehicle, I think I heard Luca on the radio once or twice. 
So that was the weird thing, was I didn't hear it. I didn't, the perspective was not me on the ground listening to the radio, doing my normal daily things. Hmm. Instead, I was on stage singing it constantly. It was singing it on TV or singing it at a radio station or being taken here or there or some other place. So there's that. Oh, but before we move off of Sting, there's a song that comes a bit later, which I can't believe I almost forgot, but it's a song by Chaka Khan called Ain't Nobody. Ain't Nobody Loves Me Better Than You. So this is a song that belonged to me and my boyfriend at the time, a man I dated for two years. And we broke up right before I became successful. He had asked me to marry him, and I said I needed to think about it, and then we broke up and my career took off, and he went his way. But 23 years later, he came back into my life and asked me again. (laughs) And now we've been married for 17 years. Wow, what a wonderful Um, story. Yeah, Yeah, so that song, every time I hear that Chaka Khan song, it fills me with happiness, and I love, love that song. So that song belongs to me and my current husband and former boyfriend, who are the same person. Yeah, how wonderful. And, yeah. and tell us a bit more about him, what he does. and. At the time when I first dated him, he was a street poet who also worked as a temp doing office work. In the years that we had separated and been apart, he then became a civil rights lawyer, First Amendment free speech lawyer. So that's what he does now. He does both spoken word poetry and trial law. And how did he get back in touch with you? Uh, he found me on the internet, and he just suddenly wrote me just wrote me a note <laughs> with my old address on it, which was very confusing to me. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, so he yeah, just wrote me a casual note, like, did I know anything about the poetry scene in New York? And I was like, what? Uh, he had moved to California when he went to law school, and so that's where he set up his practice. I bet your heart skipped a beat when you saw his name. Yeah, I did. I thought, oh, what's this about? Hmm. You know, and then things happened pretty quickly. That was in October, and we were married the following February. Have you written a song about him? I've written many songs. I've written eight or nine songs about him. In fact, most people wouldn't know this, but he is in a couple of songs on the first album. Oh. Yeah, so he's actually sprinkled all the way through my career, but you wouldn't know it because most people move on. Yes. from their relationships, but yeah. my life tends to go in more, is it more of a circle. So there's a couple of songs on the first album, like Freeze Tag, um, it was written for him on the first album. Do and you, then the song Back Later is for him also. Do you have a song regarding your daughter Ruby? Maybe one that you used to sing to her when she was a, a baby? <laughs> <or>? no, <laughs> there is a song that you, you'll laugh. Oh, God, it's... Um, I don't know if this is, again, it's kind of profane, um, but it's sort of funny. There's a song by Panic at the Disco. Mm-hmm. You know that band? Um, I don't actually, no, but I'll I'll look it up after we've spoken. Yeah, they're sort of an emo band, Panic at the Disco. They were uh, they were part of a bunch of groups. Um, there's Panic at the Disco and Fall Out Boy. Do you know Fall Out Boy? No, but uh, again, I'll look them up. So my daughter loved music, and she was really, really into this one song that she kept playing. The song is called I Write Sins, Not Tragedies, Mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic video. (laughs) So Ruby had fallen in love with the song. She was about nine years old, and she was really into the emo scene. 
And this was right before I was going to get married to Paul. You know, and after all these years, we were planning the wedding, and uh, so it was probably January. And, you know, she's playing the song over and over again, I Write Sins, Not Tragedies. And the lyrics go like this. Oh, well, imagine as I'm piecing the pews in a church corridor, and I can't help but to hear, no, I can't help but to hear, an exchanging of words. What a beautiful wedding. What a beautiful wedding, says a bridesmaid to a waiter. And yes, what a shame. What a shame the poor groom's bride is a whore. So, <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, and I'm, I'm, I'm going, Ruby, stop listening to that song. You know, mommy's getting married. <laughs> she doesn't want to hear this stupid song that you're listening to. Um, just stop it because I like the song no I'm going to keep playing it so <laughs> afterwards I really fell in love with the song and I fell in love with the band and I fell in love with the video but that was unfortunately the first song that came popping into my brain when you said is there a song you associate with Ruby oh. I imagine so she changed your life Suzanne I imagine she's the apple of your eye Ruby oh yes yes very much there's no no question about that tell us about her today She's 28, and she is a lab research scientist. Mm -hmm. She's getting a PhD in biology, and she, her speciality is infectious diseases, and she is studying tuberculosis. She didn't want to follow in your footsteps? She did not, but she's a wonderful musician, and she sings with me on stage, and she writes her own music. You know, she always has that. To, to go back to if she ever wants to. She can she plays a number of different instruments hmm. and she's um, a terrific singer. There's a couple of great songs with Ruby in the title, aren't there? Oh, yeah. I love those. Kenny Rogers so, Ruby, and Kaiser Ruby, Chiefs. Ruby. Yes. Excellent. And there's also Ruby uh, sung by, by Ray Charles, which I love. Yeah. Have you got one to do with, like, you picked up from traveling the world? Because obviously you've done that many times as an artist is there anything is there a song which reminds you of touring perhaps yeah by b.o.b is that b.o.b dylan nope no no b period o period b period okay so good yeah okay. a song called so good song by b.o.b hmm? drinking a german beer with a cuban cigar in the middle of paris with a dominican broad um, yeah, it's great. It's about traveling. It's about, um, you know, suffering from first-class cabin fever, five-hour layovers from Norway to Egypt, um, to the point like the pyramids of Giza, still um, to the left like the tower out in Pisa. You know, it's great. It's just a wonderful song about traveling and spinning the globe and, you know, the first-class traveling life. When you do travel, do you make a point of experiencing the culture of the places you're in, of perhaps going to see some of their artists when you can? When I can. And thing, you almost never really get a chance to, to go out and about. It tends to be, you know, the tours are not set up that way. You can't take a day off before and after a show and expect to make any money because everyone, you know, it's very expensive touring, especially these days. But yeah, I study the language. I usually also read literature of the country that I'm in, so that, that helps. What do you like to do when you come to the UK? Anything in particular? <laughs> I drink tea. I love tea. I love pots of 
tea. I like it really strong. I like builder's tea. And um, that's one of the thrills is uh, knowing that people, when you ask for a pot of tea, they really make it right. <laughs> Where do um, you go for that? I go to my hotel. I mean, I get it in the morning anywhere I go. I hmm. get it. Um, but I've spent some lovely times in the UK. I used to spend, I spent a few months in on Frith Street at Hazlitt's. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time in my life when I'd spent a lot of time there. In fact, I ran into Bono there, once, which was sort of fun. Wow, tell us about um, that conversation. Oh, it was great. It was right, up, right before their Zuropa tour. And he was doing a video in Piccadilly. And he was using the parlor room of Hazlitt's as the dressing room for all of his sunglasses. So he hauled me in there and asked me to help him pick uh, one or two pairs that I would like. And there must have been 25 pairs all along the windowsills and the mantelpieces. So um, it was great. It was so funny. It was a very funny meeting. And and you got to keep Bono's sunglasses? No, no. No, but he gave me his phone number, so I kept that instead. And have you rung it? No, well, no. I, I write. I send him the occasional email, but I, I actually don't like talking on the phone, so I just, you know, send him a little note now and again. I must ask you, if you don't mind, in September you tweeted a picture of yourself with our Queen, who just died. What are yeah. your memories of meeting her? I thought she was great. She was so down to earth. She shook my hand, and this is for a charity that I work for called Casa Alianza, and they had their headquarters in Kettering. Mm. And so Kettering uh, had this new building, uh, an office building, and so she was there for the opening of this building. And I was there because I did work for the charity. And so I worked with this guy named Fred Shortland, and he's the one who brought me into the charity. So she came toward me and shook my hand and said, so you work with Fred. What do you do? And I said, well, yes, I work with Fred, and I, I sing, mostly, and I uh, give out information and collect money uh, for, this, for the charity, and I explained to her some more of what we were doing, and she listened very carefully, but she was so lovely and grounded, and I've never forgotten that she said, so you work with, so you work with Fred, then? <laughs> sometimes people think, when they see the picture of a shaking hands, that she's saying something like, oh, I'm a big fan of Luca, or something like that, like she knows my work, but not at all, you know, so you help Fred, uh, was what she said. Should really have been the other way around, shouldn't it? So Fred works with you. It was fine. She had met Fred first, and so it, uh, it, it was very charming. Yeah. Are you, are you one of these Americans that are quite struck by our royal family? I love it. I think it's an important part of history to keep alive. I know there are others who, who feel that it sh- they should all be abolished, but I think the whole European system of royalty is is interesting, and it's, as I said, a living part of history. So, yeah, from that angle, I find it fascinating. Would you write a song about her or our new King Charles? Oh, gosh, I'd have to think about that. Yeah, what <laughs> angle to take on that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I was a fan of Princess Diana. I met her once backstage at the Prince's Trust. I met them both, actually. And she, again, was wonderful. She really had sort of the common touch. She approached me in the receiving line, and she kind of waved her hand and said, so is all this lot your band? 
meaning like level 52 and um, big country were on either side of me. And she was sort of assuming that all these guys were my band. Uh, so I said, no, no, I'm here by myself. And she asked whether I was jet lagged. And, you know, she couldn't have been more charming. It was really like we were just two girls talking. Whereas I have to say Prince Charles seemed a bit awkward and, you know, a bit, um, you know, a bit stiff. So she was the, the charmer of that couple yeah she loved 80s music i imagine she'd have known your songs very well well we didn't talk about that but i just loved it that she sort of approached me just like um so it's all the slot your band you know it was <laughs> yeah. great <laughs> level 42 and is there a song you want played at your funeral oh gosh yes there's a wonderful wonderful song by by laura nero and it's called and when i die mm-hmm and it's this great, joyful song about, you better bundle up my coffin because it's cold way down there. And when I die, there'll be one child born and a world to carry on. And do you hope to live to a ripe old age? I do, yes. I hope to last at least 95. Hmm. And do you think you'll ever retire or will you bop till you drop? I'll bop until I can't bop anymore. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I drop is something else but yeah i'd like to continue as far along as i can i mean judy collins has always been an inspiration to me and she still is and she's in her early 80s and she sounds gorgeous and looks gorgeous and she's still out there touring so i adore her and hopefully i can follow that path how important is your musical legacy suzanne well i think of i think of leaving a legacy or having an archive or but at the same time, I'm very well aware of time, time passing. Uh, it concerns me when I see someone with such a huge talent, someone like Judy Garland, and I know that there are people in newer generations who don't know who she is, and I, that's, that astonishes me because this is the woman who, who was a great, great artist. So it's not as though I have any, any illusions. But, you know, I'd like to think that there is a circle of people who care, who care about it, who care about my life and the work that, it, that has spun out of it. I like to live my life as though it matters. Yes. You mentioned Judy Garland. I like the uh, biopic of her with Rennie Zellweger. Would you like there to be a film of your life one day? Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Maybe. I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> That's all. I, you'd really need the right person to do it. So, who knows? And how would you like people to remember you after you do leave this planet? I hope they see me as a very strong person who is able to articulate things that are not always articulated. Which of your songs are you most proud of? Is there one in particular that's more autobiographical or something? Uh, Luca is really a song I'm very proud of. Um, it's a song that changed my life when I wrote it, and I still get mailed from people who tell me that it's changed their life, or they finally understood that they weren't alone in their situation. Uh, at the time when it came out, I got letters from people who... I got a, a letter from a girl who was about 12 who said it changed her life because she told the doctors what her... Uh, what was happening at home, and they were able to take her out of her situation. 
and she felt the song saved her life. So that's the song I'm most proud of. Suzanne, can I just ask you about Glastonbury? Because you were, I think, the first female artist to play Glastonbury, weren't you? Is that right? I was the first female artist to play the main stage. Right. And you were in a bulletproof vest, is that true? Yes, it's true, yeah. Can you explain why? Uh, We had a stalker who was stalking my bass player. And I didn't know it, but Scotland Yard informed me right before I was supposed to go on stage that I was included in that threat. And they had found this woman's accomplice, but they hadn't found her. So they gave me an official warning not to perform that night. And I said, of course I'm going to perform. I mean, I'm headlining. You know, so they said, well, if you insist on doing the show, then you have to wear a bulletproof vest. So I wore one of the guys, one of the police took off his vest and gave it to me and I had to gaffer take myself into it. And I went on stage wearing that and my assistant's jacket over everything. God. Must have been quite scary all the way through, though, wondering if someone was going to take a shot at you. Yeah, it was. You know, but on the other hand, uh, you know, I felt I needed to do it and, you know, I didn't even think twice. I just went out. I did my show. And then we came off. 